Well, morning, everyone. Very warm welcome to you. And if you're visiting, I uh, hope you enjoy being with us. It's great to have your family with us, Belinda, this week. Um, yeah, my name is Matthew. And we're starting, I don't know if you can guess, uh, we're continuing with our um, Let Love Be Your Highest Goal series. Um, and we're looking at a passage from 1 Corinthians up Paul wrote. So I'm not sure if you can guess from that clip what part of it we're looking at today. But I'll read it to us and then I'm sure you will guess which one. So... Let me read it. This is what we've been looking at uh, at the beginning of the year as we focus on our our year uh, to love that we've been looking at as a church. So it says, love is patient, love is kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let love be your highest goal. So do you know which one we're looking at today? You got it, that's right. We're looking at love is not boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Or another uh, kind of translation of it is love, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. And I think this other way of looking at it, it kind of answers that question, like, well, why would boasting and pride, you know, not be loving? Why is that like an, you know, the opposite to, to show love? And it's because really these are self-seeking actions, isn't it? It's all about me, it's all about, you know, who I am, and it's trying to draw praise and approval uh, from others and attention to ourselves and maybe ignoring others is often at other people's expense. And it comes from this idea that I'm more deserving or I'm more worthy or I'm more special than other people. And in the Corinthian church that uh, Paul wrote this letter to and this passage to, there was a real problem with people competing and boasting and being proud within the church there. And that's partly why Paul wrote it. And they were arguing about who was the most spiritual and who knew the most and who could you know, do the most. And it was causing division. And Paul had to write to them and say, your worship services, they do you more harm than good. I'm certainly not going to praise you for this. I hear there are divisions among you when you meet together as a church and they were competing with one another to be the most spiritual and holy and you know I'm the, I'm a better Christian than you or whatever. And then Paul goes on to address specifically when they would come and take communion together. And back in the New Testament churches, we saw that when they would take communion, which is where they would share bread and wine, it, it would remind them of Jesus' death on the cross. And the bread spoke about Jesus' body, that you know, he gave his life for us, and the, the wine about the blood that he shed for us on the cross, so uh, we could be forgiven for the things we've done wrong, and you know, we could know God in our lives, we could have a relationship with him. Of course, Jesus came back to, to life again, and is alive now in heaven, and one day promises to return, and all of this goes on in this meal. They were remembering it, and they would come and they'd have this big meal together, and it was a real expression of unity, because, you know, back then, as I mentioned before, society was very divided. You were either a slave, or you were a free person. You were rich, or you were poor. You were a Jew, or you were a Roman, or you were like a barbarian, and it was, you know, life was very divided, and you fitted into a category and that was it and the categories didn't mix but now you had this amazing thing called the church where for the first time rich and poor and people from all different nations would eat 
together and they belong to the same thing. They just didn't live in the same city, but now they, they belong to something together and they reunited in Jesus. And it was amazing. It was groundbreaking. It was new. And this communion meal was an amazing expression of it. But when the Corinthian church were coming together, the influence of their background and their culture was so strong that they were coming to eat this meal together, but they weren't unified at all. And Paul says to them, some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have your own, own homes to eat and drinking? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? And so the rich and the wealthy were coming in, bringing their own food to a shared meal. But they weren't sharing it out. They were having their own like party in the corner and they were having a great time. And then those who had little, you know, they were bringing it to share. And they didn't have enough to go around. And it was, it was exposing the poor in the church. And Paul says, you know, this is, this is dishonoring the Lord's body. This is the context of that passage here. What's really interesting here is how the church were coming together to celebrate Jesus and they were doing it in the most unlike Jesus way, weren't they? You know, and that's a real lesson to us, isn't it? That, you know, not to get religious about things, where, you know, not to do things in Jesus' name, but actually forget who Jesus was and what Jesus was like and the heart behind what we do. That's really important. So in Corinth, we see this outworking of, of pride and, and boasting and selfishness and, and, and this kind of focus on self. And, and that's why Paul said, you know, if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love, I would be nothing. And so we see how destructive and dangerous pride is and how it's divisive for relationships. In Proverbs it says, pride goes before destruction and a proud attitude before a fall. Better to live humbly with the poor than to share plunder with the proud. There's a famous saying, isn't it, from, it comes from this proverb that, you know, pride goes before a fall. I remember when I was in my first year at uni, and it was around this time of the year, around February, and one of my friends in my halls um, asked me if I would show them how to use the library, the uni library. And it was like February, okay? We'd started in September. So I was like, you, you, you mean you haven't been to the library yet? I mean, they've studied geography or something, so fair enough. I'm going to get But I was like, well, they, they actually were studying geography, human geography. Anyway, if you're a human geographer, my apologies. My three housemates were human geographers, so anyway... Um, so I was, I was like that, I was teasing them. I was like, I can't believe I haven't got to the library. So we walked all the way into campus, walked to the library. I'm showing them, you know, this is where the books are, and this is how you scan it in. And to be honest, I, I, was, taking the, I was taking the mic, okay? And then um, a couple of friends came over that we knew, and, you know, bumped into them. We were chatting, oh, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, can you believe it? They know I used the library before. And I was teasing them in front of, them, in front of everyone else. And then I said, oh, hold on a minute, I just need the toilet. And I turned around and walked straight into the ladies' toilet. <laughs> So, classic, your know, pride comes before a fall. I've experienced it many times itself. But why does, you know, why does pride, like, come before, you know, wh- why do these things go together so often? Why does pride come before a fall? Well, it's because pride is a blind spot. You know, we're, we're blind to our own pride. We, we often don't, we don't see it. This is mine, Darko's bird box impression. Um... When when we're led by pride, it causes us to focus on ourselves and it gives us inflated sense of who I am and what I deserve. 
And we can lose sight of the reality of, of our friends and our family or the people around us or our work colleagues and what's really going on. Think of Pharaoh in the story, in the Exodus story, when Moses comes to him and pleads with him to let the Hebrews go. And, Mo- and Pharaoh refuses to listen. And Moses says, you know, I've been sent by God. And, and if, if you don't listen, then, to, you know, destruction is going to come on Egypt. And, and the plagues come. And Moses keeps going back and, and pleading and, and, and persuading. But out of his arrogance and his stubbornness, Pharaoh continually refuses. And even at one point, his own officials come to him and they say, it says in this, Exodus 10, Pharaoh's officials now came to him and appealed to him, how long will you let this man hold us hostage? Let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? And it says how, you know, the Pharaoh's officials and and the Egyptians, they respected Moses and they saw him as a great man in Egypt. But Pharaoh, he he was blinded and everyone else was saying, just let them you know, let them go. If it's, you know, it's time, let them go. But he would not do it because he was blinded by his pride. And so, if pride can be a blind spot sometimes in our lives, it may not be to the extent of Pharaoh, you know, but we can all be vulnerable a bit, can't we? Because, you know, we all, we all live in our own head, don't we? We all see things from our own point of view. It's, you know, we can't help that really. So, what are some warning signs to the blind spot of pride? What are some things that we might recognize from time to time that might just make us check our heart? Like we all do these things from time to time. And, you know, none of us are perfect, as we know. But if we begin to notice a consistent pattern emerging in some of these things, they might be a little warning light to just make us, oh, I just need to check my heart here. Am I, am I wandering into a blind spot in, in, uh, in my life? And I've been looking at a few articles and some other talks and some things that they say that might be bli- um, warning lights to being led by pride sometimes in our lives. So do you want to hear some of what they are? Okay, it's not all of them, but it's a, it's a few. Okay, so number one is, are we able to receive feedback well? Are we teachable? Or do we find that if someone brings some guidance or correction you know, into our lives in work or you know, friends or colleagues or whatever... Oh, do we find that we get defensive and we find it really hard, we find it really hard to take feedback? Are we able to say sorry and own our own mistakes without blame shifting and blaming others? But sometimes, you know, we just say, oh, I'm sorry, that was, you know, that was my fault. Number three, do we struggle to submit to authority or respect processes? <laughs> Do we, do we find ourselves resisting or breaking or bending the rules as if, you know, these processes or these structures or what the boss has said applies to everyone else but not to me? You know, and everyone, everyone else has to do it a certain way, but I, I, I know better. I'll do it my, my own way as if there's a special difference for us. Do we feel that certain tasks or responsibilities are beneath us? And we find ourselves resisting. Number four, are we able to take advice? Do we seek out advice or do we resist advice when it comes our way? Now for young people, you know, are we able to listen to those older than us with a bit more experience than we have and not get impatient when they come in and, you know, it's maybe different to what we thought, what we think or whatever. Because the thing with advice is, You don't always have to take all of it, 
But sometimes if we can just listen to advice from others, there sometimes might just be a nugget of wisdom that even if it doesn't change all of our action, but it just modifies a direction or just causes us to think something through or, or to wait a moment or just a slight change. And that can be really helpful. Me and Precious met with some friends of yours the other day and they were saying how they'd been invited to a wedding and the bride and groom thought it'd be a really good idea that when they did their table layouts to mix up all their friends and family so that all of you know, her friends and family and all his friends and family could all mix and get to know each other throughout the thing. And as soon as it and we were like, oh no, <laughs> you know, because that's a great idea. And this, this couple was saying to us that they were sat next to some, some people who'd flown from Canada. And they hadn't seen their family for seven years. And rather than being on a table with their like cousins and brothers, you know, sisters they hadn't seen, they were sat with them and other strangers that none of them knew each other. And they all just wanted to be with their friends, you know, and you think, oh, it's a lovely idea that everyone will get to know each other. But it's probably they just ask someone and taking some advice, you know? So, awkward. Anyway, so we changed our plans after that. <laughs> and then, so, you know, young people, let's, let's look for advice. And then also, likewise, for older generations, are we able to listen to the voice and the concerns of those younger than us and their perspective and what's on their mind and what they're concerned about and what they're looking to without just, mi- just dismissing it because they're young or because they're youth. One thing that really surprises me is the reactions, for example, you see to Greta Thunberg. You know, this girl here, she's just turned 17. When she was 15, she started a small protest in her school that suddenly, like, captured global attention and has, like, launched her into a spokesperson to the, you know, the climate crisis and things. She's been thrown into the spotlight and has created a platform for her and other young people around her age to share their concerns and have their voice. I know, of course... People might not agree with everything that she has to say, but what shocks me is the criticism and backlash that she gets, and it's often so harsh and dismissive, well, you know, and sometimes it focuses on her age or her appearance or the way that she speaks, and often the criticism comes from men my age and older, and I'm thinking to myself, you might disagree, but at the end of the day... She's just a 17-year-old girl. And she's a, you know, she's a human being. And this verse says, love is not rude. You know, love is not rude. So for us, we've got to be, you know, let's, let's be mindful of our speech. Let's be mindful of what we put on social media. Let's be mindful of, you know, do we have to make that comment? Do we have to make that criticism? Is it really that important? Can we listen? Can we listen to others? Can we hear their views? Love is not rude. Similar to this is number five, how do we treat those in service industries? You know, do we say please and thank you? And do we are, take an interest in, in people's lives and how their day has been? And are we patient when there's a queue or there's a rush or our meal was cold? You know, are we kind to those who serve us? And then lastly, number six, do we find ourselves regularly getting frustrated or dissatisfied with groups that we're a part of. 
So, you know, we, we have a job or we join a team or in a friendship group. And, and for the first six to 12 months, it's really great and we love it and everyone's fantastic. But then we continually find ourselves after a period of time getting frustrated with it and getting, you know, oh, um, this isn't good enough really, and find ourselves becoming critical about my team or my colleagues or this group or this person. And we notice that this occurs over and over and over, and there's a pattern of every time we have a job or every time we're in a group or every time we're in a society that, you know, 12 months in, these things start to come out. One of the amazing things about Jesus is that he came from heaven to earth, the Son of God, as a man, the only person in the world to live a perfect life. And yet, when Jesus chose his disciples, and we, of course we know of the 12 disciples, but also there was a bigger team of disciples who lived and traveled and followed with Jesus, made up of men and women. When he chose them, they were just ordinary people, like me and you, flawed and with shortcomings, and make mistakes. Yet Jesus, he chose them, and he invested in them, and he built relationship with them, and he worked alongside them day in, day out. And yes, they made plenty of mistakes. And I'm sure for Jesus sometimes when it was like, why are they arguing about who is the greatest again? You know, he must have been like banging his head on the wall. You know, I'm sure sometimes. But we see with Jesus... Even with all this, you know, he didn't abandon them. He didn't think, oh, they don't deserve me. He didn't criticize them. He didn't become despondent, but he stuck with them. And he trained them and he encouraged them. And he helped them and he corrected them. And more than that, he served them. In Luke 22, Jesus said, In this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course, but not here. I am among you as one who serves. And this is how Jesus lived. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging to us? That's how Jesus is to us. Wow, I love it. So the good news for us is, when we begin to maybe recognize one of these warning lights come up in our lives from time to time, that there's a solution to it, and it's the influence of Jesus, the influence of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. In Ephesians 4, it says, let the Spirit change your way of thinking and make you into a new person. Now, we all know that who we spend time with influences us, doesn't it? And shapes the way we think, shapes the way we feel. So me, for example, okay, I have a bit of a reputation for wearing check shirts. Now, I have one for every day of the week. And uh, I've never actually bought myself a check shirt, but I seem to get bought them all the time. And it's become like adopted as my standard uniform. And people like to take the mickey out of me. Here's Sam wearing nice stripes. And me, this is my standard green check shirt. I'm, I, I'm actually wearing one today, which was unfortunate. But there we go. But since um, being dating Precious, I'm increasingly becoming a changed man. And some of you may notice I'm, I'm venturing into new, into new territory, even with matching shirts from Gambia. Isn't that impressive? So, you know, I'm slowly becoming an, a new man. Isn't that? But Precious is getting a Welsh accent, so I feel like, you know, we're getting even on that one. So, 
But when we draw, when we draw close to Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in our lives, we're increasingly shaped and influenced by him and how he lived. In Philippians 2, Paul, write, Paul wrote, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, but be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And so as we spend time with Jesus, as we draw close to him, as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, as we get into scripture and see how Jesus lived and how he acted, as we spend time together, the influence of Jesus can, can shape our lives, can bring transformation, can help us step out of those warning signs and into how Jesus did it. And so I thought to finish today, we'd have one quick look at one of Example from Jesus' life, very practical one, and how he dealt with this in one of those situations. Is that okay? And this will be our last one before we finish. So it comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 40. And Jesus was invited to the house of one of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were, you know, the ones with the wealth and the power. And everyone esteemed to be uh, a Pharisee. They were well respected. And Jesus was invited to someone's, this person's house. And as the scene goes on, we see that the Pharisee who invited Jesus ignored the usual customs that you would give to a guest if you had them over that would honor them. And this Pharisee ignored them, which shows that he felt that he was the honored person and like Jesus should feel honored to be invited to his house. And so it was almost, almost like an interview situation, if you like. Let's see if Jesus can prove himself as worthy as we are, as good as one of us Pharisees. So he was elevating himself and, and kind of dishonoring Jesus in, this, in the way he went about it. Does that make sense? So Jesus is there, but Jesus... You know, he's secure in who he is. You know, he doesn't pipe up and complain. He just lets it slide. And he shows grace to the Pharisee. And he goes along with the meal. And he joins in with, you know, the conversation, what's happening. He doesn't feel like he needs to prove himself. And then suddenly, into this meal bursts this lady and she wasn't meant to be there, but she probably broke through the crowd and into the meal and in the town, she had a reputation as a, an immoral woman. In, it doesn't say what, but it just says, you know, a well-known immoral woman, like, burst into the meal. And uh, she comes in, and she has with her a big jar of perfume. She comes straight up to Jesus, and she breaks open the jar of perfume. She starts pouring on it his feet, and then she starts crying and wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And uh, it's a little unusual. Um, you know, if that happened right now, I wouldn't know what to do. And, uh, but Jesus, he's, you know, he's cool, calm, collected. In, in the moment. And yeah, obviously there's a lot of symbolism and stuff going on there, but which we won't get into now. But basically she is showing worship to Jesus. She's showing gratitude to Jesus that he has brought forgiveness into her life and, and brought a change in her life. And she's expressing that, you know, honor and worship to Jesus through what she does. But when the Pharisee looks on, you know, he thinks 
to himself, what on earth is Jesus doing? And why, you know, what's going on here? And he says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. And so we can see, you know, in the Pharisee's heart and attitude, you know, a bit of his character here, can't we? We can see how, you know, there's a bit of pride in there that's, that's coming out. Where am I up to here? Sorry. So then, getting excited. Okay. So then Jesus responds and answers him. And he says, Simon, he said to the Pharisee. Now, interesting here, we get introduced to the Pharisee's name at this point, And Jesus, he'll come back to it in a bit. That's interesting. Okay, we'll come back to it. Anyway. Simon, he said, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, go ahead. And then Jesus tells a story. And he says, there was once a, was once a king, there was once a man who lent... Uh, money, 50 pieces of silver to one and 500 pieces of silver to other. And after some time, neither man in debt could repay. And so the, the king, he just forgave them both and wiped both debts free. And then Jesus said, which one of the two men do you suppose loved the king the most after that? And Simon says, well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And then Jesus says, look at Jesus' response. He says, yes. You have judged rightly. And then Jesus goes on to say, Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. So with Jesus here, we can see that when Simon was discourteous and proud and rude. Jesus was secure in in himself. And he didn't feel like he needed the attention of being the honored guest. He didn't feel like he needed to prove himself. And so when this woman came in and Simon criticized her, Jesus didn't feel like he needed to join in. He didn't need to join in the criticism and think, oh, this is an opportunity to prove myself to the Pharisees or to show them how great I am and I'm better than others. He didn't, he didn't rise to that. He didn't need to do that. Jesus didn't act out of a sense of pride in the situation. But then at the same time, Jesus, he wasn't a pushover. He wasn't weak. He was choosing this response. And then at the moment that Simon began to criticize and condemn the woman who was vulnerable, well, at this point, Jesus stepped in. And he exposed Simon's heart and attitude. But he didn't do it for his own He didn't do it for his own sake, but he did it in order to protect someone who was vulnerable and to address an injustice on behalf of the voiceless. And he says to Simon, You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And he highlights the good action of this person and raises her up. And so Jesus used his strength 
not to assert his own rights and positions, not to elevate himself, but to protect the weak and to elevate others. And he restores the woman publicly by saying, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus confronted Simon's attitude, but uh, now for Simon, I'm sure Simon was a little bit embarrassed by this, you know, pride comes before a fall. But the great thing about Jesus as well is Jesus didn't humiliate Simon in the way that he did it. It was, it was embarrassing, but Jesus didn't like press in and humiliate Simon. He started the whole thing by saying, you've judged rightly. And, you know, highlighted some, uh, some good things in Simon, if you like. And what I love about this story is, like I said earlier, the fact that Simon is named in the story. Now, Jesus met with many Pharisees for dinner, and usually they're not named Just like Jesus healed many people in the Gospels, and occasionally one or two of them are named, and their name is recorded. And historians and scholars suggest that when a character is named in the Gospels, like like Simon here, or someone who's been healed, like blind Bartimaeus or something, it's probably because they were well known in the early Christian communities, or even that they were the ones telling the story, and that these were their testimonies that then got written down and recorded by, say, like Luke, for example. So the fact that Simon is named, and also that it's Jesus who introduces Simon's name, not Luke who's narrating it, but Jesus when he says, Simon, I have something to tell you, would suggest that Simon became a follower of Jesus himself. That's what the commentators believe. And that Simon is the one telling this story. And that's how Luke writes it down. This is Simon's testimony. This is Simon's story about the time that I had Jesus for dinner and I was proud and rude and discourteous. And this is, you know, this is what Jesus did for me. And this is how it's changed my life. And so this encourages me that if Simon the Pharisee can have this change of heart and a transformation and be humble enough to tell this story about his own life, then for us, you know, when we struggle with pride or boastful or rude from time to time, that we can change too through the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and what he does in our lives. Isn't that amazing? So this encourages us that we can all do it and we can all learn to live and love like Jesus did. How does that sound? So... That's the end. Why don't I pray? Jesus, I thank you that you are so amazing and that you are alive today, that you work in our lives. I thank you that, you know, even though we are imperfect and we make mistakes and have our shortcomings, that you do not give up on us, you do not abandon us, you do not get frustrated or downhearted with us, but that you love us and you invest in our lives and you work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we just want to stand here today and say we want to be more like you and we invite you and ask Holy Spirit when, you know, areas of pride or boasting or rude stir up in our hearts, we pray Holy Spirit you'd bring your influence that we can honour others and protect others and speak up for the vulnerable in our lives and you would help us to love others like you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Great, thanks.